Uh, welcome to CVC. If I've not met you, uh, my name is Joe Valenti. I'm one of the pastors here. I serve with our students, middle school and high school, and with our missions department. And uh, we're in week two of a series called Life After Christmas, in which we're looking sort of at this, uh, this short period of time, uh, at least as it relates to the Bible, between Jesus' birth and his public ministry when he's about 30. There are only a few stories that the Bible gives us of that period of time. And so this series is looking at that uh, period of time, and it will launch us into our next series called Jesus, God, and Man, which will continue our study of Luke. And so if you would, turn with me to Luke 2. That's where we'll be this morning, Luke 2, starting in verse 39. And while you're getting there, I'll tell you a little bit about my son, Logan. My son, Logan, is 11, and uh, he is one of those kids who asks a ton of questions. And uh, one of the most recent questions, we are driving to school, and he said, Hey, Dad, uh, where, um, where, where does God live? Okay, well, God, God is everywhere. Logan. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, Dad. So um, before he created the earth, where was he? Hmm. He, well, he was, um, he was, he was, he was everywhere. God is, well, does he live in heaven? Well, well yeah, but he's, but he's, but he's everywhere too, right, Dad? Yeah. So before God created anything, where was everywhere? I don't know, kid. Leave me alone. <laughs> I don't know. I love when Logan asks me those types of questions. Kids from youth group, uh, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth graders on up through high school are always coming into my office and asking me difficult questions. And I love when they ask me difficult questions. I love when Logan asks, asks me difficult questions because what it communicates about them, about kids or adults, when we ask hard questions, it communicates that we're aiming at finding an answer that's better than the one that we currently have. I'm going to use an illustration this morning that I'm actually stealing from another sermon that I heard, uh, I, but, but I think the illustration works. What we're aiming at when we ask difficult questions is mountain-type answers. Mountains that are firm under our feet as opposed to cloud-type answers. You know, I think we have cloud-type answers to a lot of life's big questions. And as soon as our lives... Uh, come up against some sort of difficulty or circumstance or situation, or as soon as somebody challenges that view, the cloud answers are easily blown away. One of the questions that Logan asked recently is, hey dad, how do we know that Jesus is the only way to heaven? How do we know that somebody else's religion or story or book is not the right answer? It's a great question. And it's an important question. Who is Jesus? It's perhaps the most important question in the world. It's the most important question that any of us will ever answer. And I'll tell you what, Logan's answer when 
one of his friends from a different faith background begins to ask him questions, or when he's challenged from an English teacher in high school or a professor in college, Logan's answer when life comes at him hard, when his heart is broken, or when he can't find a job, or when he experiences death, Logan's answer had better not be, well, my dad said so. It's a terrible answer. He can't live his life. That's, that's no foundation for him. I try to help, but his answer to the who is Jesus question can't be something vague, some cloud answer that he was a nice guy or some prophet. And your answer to that question matters and my answer to that question matters because the answer to that question determines your eternity. And so we're gonna look at Luke this morning to begin to try and answer that question. If you look at the opening section of Luke, slide back in your Bible or on your device with me to Luke 1. It's interesting what Luke says about the goal of his gospel. He says about halfway through verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, it's interesting. That phrase is really interesting because he's not saying that his aim is to teach new things. This is not like an introductory course. He's saying the aim of this gospel, of this orderly account, is that you might have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So he's assuming there are already things in our brains. And the word certainty is actually two Greek words, epigenosko ho asphalia. And what it means is to know, epigenosko is to know, and ho with Asphalia is with such a level of certainty that that truth cannot slip away. And so what Luke is aiming at here, what he tells us he's aiming at, is I want this gospel, this story of Jesus' life to build mountains under your life. That the clouds, just things you learned or heard about somewhere that you heard mom and dad talking about in the car where you were little would, f would float away, would fly away, and that they would be replaced with firm foundation. That's Luke's aim. And so we're going to look today to find some mountain-type answers, some firm foundation to the question of who is Jesus. So if you would, Let's pray together and we'll go to God's word. Lord, I was just talking uh, back in the green room with the brother who is being reminded that you are eager to be found, that you will be found when we seek you with all of our hearts. And so as we consider this brief story of Mary and Joseph seeking you, would you put in us, by the power of your Holy Spirit, a deep desire to seek you and find you this morning? 
You are eager to be found. And so do in these next few minutes through me what I cannot do on my own. I think of an illustration I heard recently that a preacher may put out the net of his sermon and it can be a great net. But unless the Holy Spirit drives fish into it, it will come up empty. So Lord, would you empower me with your Holy Spirit to speak that which is true and good and right from your word? Would you drive people into the net, as it were? Would you drive us all to Jesus? And that we would have a firmer answer under our feet today about who Jesus is. We ask all of this in his holy name. Amen. <clears throat> so turn with me again, if you haven't gotten there yet, Luke chapter 2. We'll start in verse 39. I'm going to overlap a little bit with Kyle's sermon from last week. If you missed Kyle Gustafson's sermon last week, I would encourage you to go back to cvconline.org and check that sermon because it fits well with this one. Verse 39, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So this is the end of the previous story, that after they take Jesus to the temple, after he meets Simeon and Anna, they return to Nazareth, and then 41 begins the next narrative. Now the parents, now his parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them, came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So we have this one story in all of the Bible of Jesus' boyhood. Luke and Matthew both give us the narrative of Jesus' birth. Mark and John start their gospels in Jesus' adult life. Only Luke shares this one story of the 12-year-old Jesus. 
And if we, if we consider Kyle's filters that he mentioned to us last week, when we read narrative, we're to look at God as the main character. And two, we need to look at what, what the author or the narrator adds or detracts. And so this one story of Jesus' boyhood, right? We have a, a lot of years, 30 years until all of the stories of Jesus' ministry begin to come online. We have one story between birth and 30, and it's this one. And so it ought to cause us to say, this is important. Why is it important? We're going we're gonna to get there. So what's happening here? Let me, give you, let me give you the story and kind of explain the cultural context of what's going on. Mary and Joseph are good Jews, and uh, the Jews, especially men, were mandated to come to three festivals in Jerusalem every year, one of which was Passover. And Jesus is 12 years old, the text says, and that means that he's getting really close to what would be considered adulthood or manhood in the Jewish culture. Some of you have 12-year-olds and you think, what? But that is the way that it was, okay? At 13 years old, a, uh, a, a male would be responsible to the law of God himself. We know this today. Later, it became known as bar mitzvah which is translated son of the law. And so perhaps as they're going to Passover, they decide to bring Jesus sort of as, uh, as a way to uh, help him grow and develop and for him to see what it is that he will have to do when he becomes a man at the age of 13 going to Passover and, and uh, Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles and so on. So he gets to go on the trip. And so they go, they celebrate Passover, and then they leave, but Jesus stays in Jerusalem and... Nobody knows where Jesus is. Now, all of you moms, you read this story and you just go, how does, how does this happen? How does this possibly happen? Well, here's, here's probably what, what went on. We don't know this for sure, but we look at the cultural context. Um, in, in that day and age, right, like they, they didn't have those little like slinky tethers, you know, Boo, come back here, boy. Okay. They didn't, have, they didn't have those things, but it was more of a community culture. And so um, what they would have done is everybody from their neighborhood in, in, in Nazareth would have gotten together, their family and their friends, and they would have all traveled in a caravan to Jerusalem. And the women and the children, uh, not, not like children, children, but the, but the younger uh, you know, G Jesus age up through teens would travel in the front with the women and they would sort of set the pace. You know, have you ever been in a store with your kid and you're like 80, you know, paces in front and you're like, come on, you know, this would sort of set the pace. So the men would go in the back, women and children in the front. And perhaps as they prepare to leave, you know, Jesus, sinless Jesus, always where he is supposed to be, always doing what he is supposed to do, Joseph probably assumed he's in the front with Mary and the other boys and girls. And Mary probably thinks, well, hey, maybe Joseph let him walk with the men. And they break 
up the caravan in the evening after a day's journey, which is probably about 20 miles, and they would get together with their family and they would sleep and have dinner and all this sort of thing. So they, they would all find their immediate family and Jesus is nowhere to be found. And so they panic. The next morning they get up and they take the one day trip, 20 miles, trek it back into Jerusalem. And then they take a whole day to find him. Three days total, one day traveling out, one day traveling back, one day looking around Jerusalem. And they finally find Jesus and he's in the temple, and he's chatting, talking, asking questions, engaging with the teachers. Imagine if, uh, you know, one day you and your wife drive different vehicles, and uh, um, you, 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 you get home, and your wife gets home, and you go, where's Johnny? I thought you had Johnny. No, I thought you had Johnny. And you come back to the church, and he's, and he's nowhere to be found. And you finally find him in Pastor Rick Duncan's office with a huge book open about theology, ask, grilling Rick with questions. You're sixth grader, right? This is sort of what has happened. And so what do we learn here? What are we to glean from what is going on thus far? Note the bookends of this passage Verse 40 and then verse 52. They say essentially the same thing. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then in 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. These depictions are human depictions. They communicate to us that Jesus is human. Jesus grew, he got bigger and stronger. He grew in wisdom. He's sitting with these men and he's learning and he's asking them questions. He grew in favor, honor, respect with those around him and with God the Father. We see in this passage that the mind of the 12-year-old Jesus is developing as a human boy might develop. He's a little bit extraordinary because he's asking some really intentional questions and he's providing some good answers. But this text reminds us that Jesus grew up like a human boy. See, I think a lot of times we think, well, Jesus was God and, and man and we don't fully grasp all of his humanity. We think like, well, this little three-year-old was walking around with the mind of God in his brain, right? And like, you know, dishes washed, you know, <laughs> food. <laughs> and that he was, you know, was able to kind of outsmart his mom at every turn. But this is not the case. The Bible tells us that he was a learner. And so this is another one of the questions that Logan might ask me. Hey, Dad, if God knows everything, why does he need to learn I don't know, kid. Leave me alone. <laughs> but it's a great question. It's an important question. Because here it says, Jesus is learning. He's not there teaching all of the other teachers. He's in the midst of them and he's learning and growing. And so it must mean that in some way, Jesus has limited himself. In his humanity, he is limited in his knowledge and therefore needs to grow. Consider 
with me. Uh, Matthew 26, starting in verse 51, it's a real brief text of, about Jesus' arrest. It says, Behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once not send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? See, physically here, we see that Jesus has limited himself. He is not, as it were, using in complete freedom all of his divine power in this moment. As he learns, he is limiting himself and not allowing himself to have all of the divine knowledge in one fail swoop. He grows as a human boy. John Frame, who is one of the foremost scholars on the doctrine of God, says this. Jesus has proved on many occasions that he had access to the Father's power. He performed healings and other miracles, but the Father had not sent him to accomplish salvation with a display of power. The cross beckoned, and that was a call to weakness. However one distinguishes between the Father's power and Jesus' own omnipotence, Jesus certainly limited the use of his might in order to exercise that power which is made perfect in weakness. Look again with me in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus was in the form of God. He was equal with God, and nobody is in the form of God or equal with God except God. So Paul here tells us that Jesus is indeed God and that he has, in putting on human flesh, humbled himself, limited himself. He did not, what Jesus could have done is said, I'm going nowhere to save no one. I am God the Son. But he doesn't. He condescends. He humbles himself. And he empties himself. He, he doesn't empty himself of his deity. But what he empties himself of is the right to individually, to personally um, act upon or use his divine power. You will see through all all of the gospel story that Jesus is always praying to the Father and reliant on the power of the Spirit. He's never acting of his own accord, which he could have done, but he empties himself and shows his humanity. Now, so what? That's the question, right? Blah, 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 Valenny. So what? So what? Who cares that Jesus was human? What does it matter that he learned and grew and developed and didn't, that he re re relied on the Holy Spirit 
three reasons. There are more, but here are three specifically. The first thing that we learn here about the importance of Jesus' humanity is that he calls us and reminds us to be learners. Where is Jesus found even as a 12-year-old boy? He is found learning. He is among the teachers. And apparently he's been there for some time and he's asking them questions. Jesus is developing in the way that he intends us to develop. See, when we think about these clouds versus mountains, a lot of times what happens is we have a very vague cloud-like understanding of who God is and of the big questions in the world. And what happens is when those answers start to be challenged or when they begin to matter in our life, our theology breaks down because we don't have good answers. We have an answer that maybe we're taught in Sunday school or that we read in a book. And what happens is false doctrine can easily weasel its way into our hearts and into our minds. Or, and this is what happens, right, with some, is they just bail on Christianity. Because they don't have a foundation, a mountain. They're just clouds that are easily blown away. And Jesus reminds us this problem is solved as we learn and as we ask God for wisdom and as the Holy Spirit moves in our hearts and teaches. Jesus' humanity matters because it reminds us to be learners. Second, his humanity matters because he's able to understand our temptation and our sufferings. Hebrews 4 uh, rem reminds us that we do not have a high priest who was unable to understand our temptations, but who was in every way tempted as we are and is yet without sin. Jesus' humanity lets you know that you have a God and a Savior who, who, who understands your position in life, who understands your pain and your trials and your temptations and your sufferings. And yet what Jesus does is as he prays to the Father and relies on the power of the Holy Spirit, he gives us an example of how to conquer temptation how to live. He reminds us to be learners. He is able to understand our temptations and sufferings. And then here's this, the third reason that I'll mention this morning that Jesus' humanity matters is he is able to die. He's able to die. See, God cannot die unless God chooses to die. We start to roll this around in our brains. God cannot die unless God chooses to die, and the way in which God chooses to die is to put on human flesh, to put a heart in his chest and blood in his veins, so that when that heart stops, he dies. And Jesus put on human flesh. He did not count equality with the Father, something to be grasped, but humbled himself. The verb tense here is actually, he kept on humbling himself all the way to the point of death on a cross. 
If Jesus does not die, you and I have no forgiveness of sins. If Jesus is not fully human, we have no sacrifice. And so in this passage, we see Jesus developing, growing, learning. We see maybe even a bit of naivete in this 12-year-old boy. But he is indeed fully human, and his humanness matters. But let us not forget that Jesus is not merely just a human, that he is the God-man, the incarnation. He is fully God and fully man. In his godness, he has limited himself, but he is no less God. Consider John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning was the word, logos, the word that John uses throughout his gospel for Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. See, angels proclaim this both to Mary and Joseph and to the shepherds as they fill the sky. And last week we learned that both Simeon and Anna proclaim that this little baby is indeed God. But Jesus right here is about to, at 12 years old, proclaim that he is indeed God in the flesh. Read again with me from verse 28. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. So they find Jesus among the teachers. And in typical mom fashion, she probably hugs him and then goes, don't you ever do that again. You've been looking for you everywhere. And Jesus responds to her, why were you, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I would be here in my father's house? And the text says that they don't understand what he's saying. Curious. Now, some have wondered, hey, is Jesus being snarky here? He's not. And the clue, this is a real innocent, honest statement from Jesus. The clue is in uh, verse 51 where it says he went down and he was submissive to them. So Luke gives us a clue. He's not sinning. He's not attempting to be smart-mouthed or disobedient. But this is a landmark moment for Jesus. He is here using a word. Like, why did Mary and Joseph not understand? That was curious to me. What? Like, angels told you who this child is. What don't you get? But here's the thing. This is what's really, really interesting. In my study this week, I found this out. So God as father, as Jesus refers to him here, is something that, was, that nobody spoke this way in Judaism. If you look in the whole of the Old Testament, God is communicated or referred to as father only 15 times. In the whole of the Old Testament, most of those times, it's in a sense uh, of like a uh, person who made us, you know, like like, like a dad is just the person who made us, not necessarily father, like intimacy. Um, so most of the times, God is referred to as father as just, he's our creator, he's our originator. A couple of the times, it, it, the, 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 the phrase actually includes some intimacy, but it's God through a prophet talking about himself 
in the way that he would be a father to the Israelites. And so this God as father idea is not part of Judaism. Consider when you see the word Lord in your Bible, right? What's behind that is the Hebrew word Yahweh or the name Yahweh. Lord is in the Old Testament over 6,000 times. Elohim, which is kind of the generic name for God, over 3,000. Adonai, another version of the word Lord, 700 plus. Father, only 15, and only a couple of those times is it in an intimate, relational way. See, Jesus is beginning to turn the tables a bit. In Judaism, if you look through the Old Testament and you read kind of God's interaction with the people of Israel, you will realize that um, there's not that level of intimacy. So we, we talk, we, we, t- we pray and say, Father. But that's not the way in the Old Testament. See, Jesus in the temple here is probably really close to the Holy of Holies. That portion of the temple that was reserved for only the high priest, there was a huge veil. And inside of there was the Ark of the Covenant and some other artifacts, and it is where God's presence would be revealed. And only the high priest was allowed in this area after tons of purification ceremonies because if the presence of the holy God came into contact with sin, boom, dead. Nobody else was allowed close. There's a story in the Old Testament of a couple of Aaron's sons trying to test like how close they could get and what they could do and they die immediately. So God is communicating through the whole Old Testament that he does not have company with sin, with defilement. He is holy and great and big and powerful. Calling him father was not something that the Jews would have done. Read read this with me. This is a section from Job 26, verse 7. God stretches out the northern sky over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. He wraps the rain in his thick clouds and the clouds don't burst with its weight. He covers the face of the moon, shrouding it with his clouds. He created the horizon when he separated the waters. He set the boundary between day and night. The foundations of heaven tremble. They shudder at his rebuke. By his power, the sea grows calm. By his skill, he crushed the great sea monster. His spirit made the heavens beautiful and his power pierces the gliding sea serpent. These are just the beginning of all that he does, merely a whisper of his power. Who then can comprehend the thunder of his power? See, this is what the Jews are used to. This God who performed mighty acts and who killed their enemies or anyone else who stepped out of line. When the Ark of the Covenant is falling off the wagon and it's touched, death. 
So who does this little boy think he's talking to? They're terribly confused. Your father's house. How is it that you and I have the audacity to approach this God and call him father? To enter into his presence without being incinerated. It's because this little boy is no ordinary boy. He is God made flesh. He is fully human and he is fully God. And therefore, when he walked up the hill to Calvary and was murdered on a cross, two things happened. One, he died. He died the death that you and I deserve to die for our sin. But he didn't just die a human. He allowed himself to die as God, meaning this was no ordinary death, no ordinary sacrifice. This is the perfect, spotless, sinless blood of Jesus Christ that poured down Calvary's cross. And what it accomplishes for you and I is that if we would put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are clothed in his perfection. He trades our rags and our filthiness and our sin for white garments. And the veil to the holy of holies, access to the Father, is torn in two. And therefore, God is not just far off. He is not a God we need to be afraid of anymore, but we can approach his throne. Hallelujah. Because he looks at us, not on the basis of our own merits, but on the basis of the merits of his perfect son. And we can say to him, Father. And we can have intimacy with him. These are mountain truths. These are mountain truths. This, the only correct answer to the question that Jesus poses to Peter who do you say that I am? The only correct answer is the answer that Peter gives. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Your cloud answers, my brothers and sisters, won't stand up on the day of judgment. The only answer is Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God. And I have no merits of my own to stand upon. It is all of grace. And it is all him, the perfect God man in the flesh who bled and died for my sins. His perfect blood 
covering a world of sin in order that I might enter into eternity and call God Father. This is the only acceptable answer. And my prayer for all of us this week is that this would be the beginning of mountain making in our lives. Why this little story? Why this one story of 12-year-old Jesus? It's because in this story we see his perfect humanity and we see his perfect deity and it's as if Luke says, you've got to start right here. Unless you get this right, nothing else matters. He is human in that he can bleed and he is God in that he can save and if he does not die and if his sacrifice is not perfect, we have no forgiveness and no hope. That is the Jesus that we love and serve at Cuyahoga Valley Church. Nothing less, so much more. In our culture today, so-called Christians diminish this doctrine. And people want to try and set their lives on some version of Jesus that it sort of makes them jovial. And they are clouds that are easily swept away when life's difficulty comes. Only Christ, fully God and fully man, offers forgiveness and foundation for our lives that is worth planting them on. I want to invite you this morning. Maybe you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And I have prayed this week, as many of us have, that people would put their faith in Jesus Christ this morning. And I'm pretty confident that Joe Valenti hasn't said anything or done anything to cause you to change your mind. But I believe that there are some that the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart in this moment. That you're leaning into this idea of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, that can offer you forgiveness of your sins and life eternal. And so I've prayed, as have many of us this week, that the Lord would grant you repentance and that you would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. If that's you this morning, I would ask that as we pray and as we close our service in song, that you would speak with the Lord. You have access because of the blood of Christ and you can pray and you can ask for the forgiveness of your sins and you can come into relationship with God the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you do that, I would ask you, there's a little part in your program that says, I want to receive Jesus as my Savior. If you would just fill that out and tear it off and put it in the offering basket, I would just like to talk to you personally to share with you a little bit more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus.
Maybe you've not been a person thus far in your walk with Christ that has been dedicated to learning and growing as Jesus gives us an example of here. You're just kind of okay to have some cloud answers and maybe you learned some stuff when you were younger. Maybe you haven't really developed your theology. You haven't sought the Lord for wisdom. My prayer would be that 2019 would be different for you. That you would seek what Luke aims at here, that you would have knowledge that is so firm that it cannot slip away, that you would have mountains under your feet instead of clouds. Maybe you're not sure what books to use to help you understand the Bible. Maybe you're not sure what to do or where to go. Feel free to connect with me or any of the pastors here after service. We'd love to point you in the right direction. One of the ways to develop and grow in your walk with Christ is to get into a life group. Small groups of people here that grow in relationship with one another and encourage one another. Um, as they study the Bible together, there's, uh, there are some folks out here in the foyer to the right that can help you get connected to a life group so that you can grow. My prayer and my hope in 2019, like I, I, I have felt that the sermon, there's a, there's a sermon here about Jesus, humanity, and divinity that's very important. But I feel like there's in this overarching aim that has been so significant on my heart this week, Luke's phrase, that you would have certainty about the things that you have been taught. I'm thrilled that we're going through the book of Luke as a congregation this year. And my prayer will consistently be for myself and for my family and for you that we would get exactly what Luke intends. Epigenosko ho asphalaya. Knowledge that is so firm it cannot slip away. That at the end of 2019, you would be able to say, I've got mountains under my feet. And when life's trials come, and when the waves blow and the wind storms, the house on the mountain, the life on the mountain will be firm. That's my prayer for us. I've asked Nate that we close a bit uniquely. Um, one of the great joys of coming together of the communion of the saints is the public singing of truth to encourage one another. And so we're going to do that. So I would encourage you to sing these truths, to allow these truths to find their home in your hearts. And if there are things that you sing today that you're unsure of, or they're still in that cloud state, would 2019 be a year in which you seek God with all of your heart? He is eager to be found, and you can put mountains under your feet. Let's pray. God, I thank you today that you are eager to be found, that because of the life, the death, the resurrection of God the Son, Jesus Christ, you can be found in an intimate way. 
Thank you for revealing to us through your word who you are and how we are to respond to you and how we can live. I pray that CVC would not settle for the clouds, that we would be people of mountains, that your word would be firm foundation under our feet. That no doctrine or teaching or teacher or life circumstance would be able to shake us. As we sing, Lord, inhabit the praises of your people as we proclaim the excellencies of the Godhead three in one. Amen.